You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 330. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Onika Harrison. Hey, son. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> uh, sorry, see ya. <laughs> that reminded me of someone else, yeah. Yeah, we're just gonna have to do this. <laughs> yeah, Pontus is taking some time off the show, but he will be back. Yeah, so um, he's got some personal things to sort out. And uh, unfortunately, last week it came up very urgently at the last mi- last minute. So hence the very short episode that we produced last week. <laughs> but I hope all our listeners enjoyed it anyhow. Yeah, so... Don't worry, Pontus will be back. Uh, He just needs to sort a couple of things out before he can do that. But he'll he'll definitely be back to join us in something else Mm -hmm. (laughs) towards the end of the year. (laughs) So it looks like we are going to Australia. Uh, Australia? Oh, how how, how do you say that? (laughs) Never mind. Australia. (laughs) It's going to happen in November and we're going to attend the Australian Skeptics National Convention 2022. And this year it will be hosted by Canberra Skeptics and all three of us hosts of the ESP, plus Claire Klingenberg, chair of uh, AXO, have been invited. And I don't think I can emphasize enough how grateful we are for the invitation, not to talk about the excitement over this whole trip. Yes. Really looking forward to it. (laughs) So amazing. Yes. And even more amazingly, local groups of skeptics across the big continent down under seem to be interested in hosting us for smaller events as well, which sounds absolutely exciting. We can't wait to be there. Yeah. So far, Gold Coast, Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne are in the itinerary. But should any other groups be interested in having us, just saying, we are more than happy to comply. <laughs> so we are also considering popping over to New Zealand. But if local groups decided to have us there, it would definitely make the decision much easier. Yes. <laughs> Anyhow, this is something to really look forward to. That means that if all goes well, the second half of this year will be a feast of concentrated skepticism for us. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I can't wait. I'm giving a talk at Skeptical on the 17th of July, which will be online. And there's the European Skeptics Congress in September in Vienna, Mm -hmm. where we will all attend and we'll be panelists. We're going to give talks and stuff, uh, lead um, panels as chairs. And that will be followed by QED in October, Mm -hmm. where we're also all going. And then we are going to Australia. Good times. So Yes. (laughs) will be like a marathon. <laughs> yes, exa- exactly. I don't know how I will fit in any kind of work during that period, but <laughs> never mind. Who cares? <laughs> Who needs to work, you know? <laughs> just money that we work for. <laughs> exactly. We can just go f- to fields. And um, especially in Manchester, I think there are a lot of fields where you can just grab things and eat. And Yes. Yeah, the good thing is if we're going to Manchester, we can actually book our tickets now. The tickets are open. Mm-hmm. Ticket sales. <laughs> That's right. But please, we'll be there and it's going to be amazing. We can't wait to, to be back. It's, it was, what, what, three or four years ago, the last one? Was it, oh, nine, it 2019 18. or 2018 18. or 2019? It was 18. Anyhow, it was a, a, a ridiculously <laughs> long time ago. So f- fuck oh. COVID, fuck all the pandemic and and yes. and everything that's that's uh, that was in the wake of it. Yeah, uh, we are going. 
So, uh, yeah, at least we, uh, we keep our fingers crossed, as good skeptics do, mm-hmm. so, <laughs> so that nothing happens that, that can ruin all that. <laughs> but before that, as I already mentioned, in September, don't forget there is a slightly different event with more of a conference vibe mm-hmm. rather than the, the science and skepticism festival that QED is. The party vibe that, that QED has. <laughs> yeah, does. yeah, yeah. It's, it's really much more like a festival of science and skepticism, it which is, I really love. I mean, I mean that vibe is awesome. But um, probably the, the European Skeptics Congress will be a little bit more, more on the serious side. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that QED is not serious. It's, it's awfully serious, but also very much a lot of a lot of entertainment is involved uh not that much about the entertainment but conversation discussions uh very serious and and very deep discussions that will be part of the european skeptics congress so uh, to be honest i wouldn't be able to choose if i had to no which one to attend no so that's why we are attending both (laughs) (laughs) why don't we have both (laughs) yeah i don't know in fact, Pontus and myself are deeply involved in the organizing of that one as well. So come and check it out. We want to meet all of you there listening to this show. Mm-hmm. Either at QED or the European Skeptics Congress or both. Yeah. Even better. Or in Australia. <laughs> yeah, or, or in Australia. Yeah. Can't wait to be there too. I just want to say, if you see us at all three events, then we'll give you a beer. Yes, that's one thing. Of your choice. And I just had an idea. <laughs> we should probably put out a call for an ESP bingo. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. If you got all three events, then you're the winner. Yes. And your prize is a beer with us. Yeah. We'll definitely buy you a beer. Yeah. Or if you don't want to drink a beer, it can also be like Fanta or yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But, but traditionally, <laughs> uh, at these events, um, there's a lot of beer going down. So... Uh, I have a feeling that uh, that would be the best option to go for. <laughs> Anyhow. Speaking about going forwards. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are right. We are going forward with um, the episode. And obviously, to begin with, we need something called This Week in Skeptical History, also known as Twish. <laughs> yes. Well, let me start with the context. It probably doesn't come as a surprise to anyone that Italy ranks very high in the number of saints Hmm. listed in the Divine Register of Celebrities, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. There are close to 300 saints venerated by the Catholic Church only. So there's a country nobody can accuse of not being devoted to faith. But you know who the most revered saint in Italy currently is? Especially in the South. Mm, No. (laughs) Well, not the patron saint of the country, San Francis of Assisi, nor the patron saint of Europe... St. Benedict of Nursia, but it's an almost contemporary person by the name St. Pius of Pietrelcina, or Pio da Pietrelcina. Okay. <laughs> lovingly referred to by locals only as Padre Pio. He was a priest, a mystic, and a controversial figure in the eyes of the church for a long, long time. So he was born as Francesco Forgione in uh, a place called Pietrelcina in the current-day region of Campania in 1887 and died not much further from there in San Giovanni Rotondo. Mm -hmm. He was a monk in the order of uh, Friars Minor Capuchin uh, where he was given the name Pio. And the occasion that the 16th of June marks the 20th anniversary of is his canonization by Pope John Paul II. 
which happened a mere three years after he had been beautified. Mm -hmm. Quite a speedy process there. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, his beautification and canonization is even more interesting in the light of the fact that initially, back when he was still alive and an active servant of God, he was banned from public celebration of Mass. But why was that? Well, he had um, a couple of so-called preternatural or or beyond normal phenomena attached to his personality, Mm -hmm. including apparitions, healings, prophetic capabilities, and most importantly, he appeared to show the stigmata. You know the stigmata, what the stigmata are, right? Yeah, I think it's what you have on the hands, right? Like like the nails. (laughs) Um, Yes, exactly. So the nails on the cross. So the, the wounds identical to those of Christ. And, well, he became such a beloved and admired servant of God that people were lining up to have audiences with him. So there there occasionally uh, was a bit of civil unrest as well attached to his personality. Mm-hmm. And this is why, at some point, popes banned him from uh, celebrating mass. But when it comes to prophecies that, that he made, and this is interesting, mm-hmm. uh, one of them happened back in 1947 when Karol Josef Wojtyla visited him and confessed to him. Mm-hmm. This was when he told him, I mean, Padre Pio told Karol Volkila he would become Pope one day. Well, fast forward 30 years, and it did actually happen. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but getting back to his stigmata, it was something that raised suspicion even back in the day. For example, around the First World War, when he claimed to have suffered a wound on his side after a visit from Jesus, where he saw Jesus appearing with a pierced side of his oh yeah many investigations led by the holy see had been conducted (laughs) but the matter was not settled and a ban emerged as i already said only when pressure from the public grew so big did pope pius the 11th reverse the ban and from then on padre pio's veneration skyrocketed Mm -hmm. people put his portrait everywhere from shop windows to windscreens of cars so whenever i travel in the south of italy Every five minutes, I definitely come across a representation of Padre Pio. This is how revered he is. I mean, Mm -hmm. people still admire him, and he's considered one of the greatest personalities of the church. But a very important thing happened um, about five years after his canonization in 2007. An Italian historian called Sergio Luzzatto revealed the results of his research that he partially conducted with the access to the Vatican archives. So it's a bit of an investigation, the Dan Brown style investigation, if, yeah. if you know what I mean. Mm. So it's, it's like a Professor Langdon. Yeah. <laughs> but when the publication of the book happened, first in Italian, all hell broke loose. And... The book's title was Padre Pio, Miracles and Politics in 20th Century Italy. And in uh, 2011, it was uh, also published in English. And it lists a couple of documents, letters, etc., that prove Padre Pio had occasionally bought chemicals Mm -hmm. like um, uh, phenol or carbolic acid and uh, something that is called veratrodine. And these were supposed to be used for helping others. Mm-hmm. And that was the claimed purpose of uh, the purchase of these uh, chemicals. But these are definitely potentially capable of causing skin injuries, Ooh. the likes of which he showed almost all through his life. Mm-hmm. So there definitely were a couple of instances that showed a connection between the purchasing of these chemicals 
and um, the the wounds appearing on his arms, the side, and even the feet. And if you apply a little bit of skepticism there, well, <laughs> Occam's razor, for example, uh, you can apply here. <laughs> when somebody purchases these kinds of chemicals and then appear to have symptoms, appear to show uh, wounds that can be easily explained by these chemicals, then uh, what is the most likely explanation to these these wounds? A divine origin of some sort? Well, it's obviously Jesus. <laughs> yeah, definitely Jesus and definitely... <laughs> <laughs> something that had that showed and proved his uh, very close connection to Jesus. So it's very interesting. And as a result of this, oh, not only this, but a lot of other similar things, he was canonized in 2002 on the 16th of June of that year. So uh, yeah, he's an interesting personality. His resting place is, uh, it's a place of pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. But not only that, it's um, both uh, San Giovanni Rotondo, where he died, and Pietrelcina, where he, he rests. These are, are places of pilgrimage for people of faith. So, yeah, I wanted to share it with all of you. Mm -hmm. when, whenever I travel in Italy and southern Italy, as a skeptical tour guide, <laughs> Padre Pio comes up. So uh, I, I like talking about him because um, his story is fascinating and it's a good example of how people of faith can be duped because of their own faith. Mm -hmm. All right, I think we've had enough talk of uh, faith and uh, the church. And the good padre. <laughs> yeah, the good padre. Uh, so in the, the absence of uh, Pontus, I don't think there is anyone to poke the Pope this week. So um, why don't we just move on to discussing the news that we have to share with our listeners. Yes. Yes, and um, there's a polio outbreak in Ukraine. Oh. And it's pretty bad because the wild type of the polio virus turned up last year. And that's a threat because it's a high-risk country for vaccine-preventable infections right now mm -hmm. because of the war. Mm -hmm. And um, poliomyelitis causes paralysis in children. Um, the situation is even worse in the Ukraine because of the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, the war in Eastern Ukraine and healthcare reforms. Yeah. So, yeah, they don't really have good uh, good chance in that regard. Um, last October, a case of polio was um, confirmed in a one-and-a-half-year-old child. And since January, 19 cases have been confirmed. Like, you can see the numbers, but it is also hard to keep up vaccinations right now in the Ukraine. If you're fleeing your city, you won't be like, oh, we'll have to wait until tomorrow until the kid is vaccinated. That's not really a choice you can make. And that means access to medical care is disrupted by the Russian invasion. They have low immunization rates and gaps in immunizations. And we also have the high risk of international spread of the virus to um, children that haven't been vaccinated yet. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, um, you can you can see here like um, on the one hand why vaccination is so important, but on the other hand, what war can do to a country. Yeah, that's right. And uh, if I had decided to um, come up with something about the Pope, I would definitely go for a re um, like a, a really right for the Pope because you know what he did very recently, and it was um, published in um, La Stampa. Mm -hmm. It's an Italian daily newspaper that uh, he called 
the the Russians, ferocious and cruel, mm-hmm. the Russian troops in Ukraine, and Ukraine was praised by him for their heroism and courage to defend their land. So um, I think mm-hmm. that's um, that, that deserves a good point for Frankie, but um, mm-hmm. it's terrible how disruptive that can be. And, and imagine the rebuilding of the country after somehow this has to end yeah um it will be a very very painful and difficult Mm -hmm. long long process yes so yeah but when it comes to difficult and long processes (laughs) well it looks like the challenge that climate change poses is on an international scale very difficult Mm -hmm. well to meet with actual action yes and we have mentioned several times on this show that the EU has very ambitious plans when it comes to lowering carbon dioxide emissions, right? Yes. To be precise, as part of a Green Deal proposed back in 2019, the goal is to reduce emission levels by 55% compared to 1990 levels by 2030. The legislation package named Fit for 55 in 2030 was initiated by the European Commission. And Wednesday, last week, two plenary debates and voting sessions were held in the European Parliament to adopt their position on eight proposals as part of the package. Very ambitious, very good move. These new additions up for adoption were things like the intention to provide more transparency and less flexibility for member states Mm. to lower greenhouse gas emissions in different polluting sectors. Very welcome. Even new carbon sink goals have been set. That would mean not only a decrease in emissions, which is one side of the problem, but even higher levels of carbon dioxide reductions Mm. due to the implementation of carbon removal technologies. Mm. But probably the most anticipated part of the new proposals was the quicker phasing out of free allowances for industries as part of the so-called emissions trading system or ETS reform. The ETS reform is particularly interesting in this context as that is supposed to set a price for the greenhouse gas emissions the most energy intensive industry release Mm. so it is a key element in the shift towards renewable energy solutions but politically speaking it's quite a challenge obviously there are many mostly social issues to be dealt with chiefly to help those most affected by energy and mobility poverty in coping with the increase in cost of energy transition think about what's going on as a result of the war right Mm. so on this basis the ets reform package was amended several times during the debate mostly with citizens private buildings and private transport proposed to be exempt until 29 Mm -hmm. but more amendments have been proposed getting back to that later so apparently the decision-making mechanisms of the european parliament are no exception to the political games that we see all over the world that hinder actual change so as is usually the case the debate and the decision came only after a lengthy negotiation in the environmental committee regarding all the points i mentioned and even more but once the issues got to the floor the, the madness kicked in They managed to pass most of the proposals, but the ETS, so the the emissions trading system, Mm -hmm. got stuck in the process. How? The centre-right European People's Party and some of their allies Mm. put forward a series of amendments, and those would have watered down some of the changes proposed by the Environmental Committee's original report, specifically three parts of the, the aforementioned ETS reform. The one concerning power plants and factories, which is probably the most important part, a proposed social climate fund that would help vulnerable households. 
as clean energy is being revamped and and also a so-called carbon border adjustment mechanism a new kind of import tax on polluting uh, materials or sources of energy that that also has a lot to do with the current crisis in ukraine so in the end what happened was socialists democrats and greens voted down the ets reform entirely Mm -hmm. saying the changes in the original proposal would have meant giving up most of its ambitious goals that it had in the first place. And as a result, the ETS was not passed by the parliament. Mm -hmm. And Peter Lees, who was the one leading the ETS proposal, said this was a bad day for the European Parliament. And I say, yes, it was, as well as a bad day for Europe and the world. Because now we're back to square one on the emissions trading system. Mm -hmm. The proposal now has to go back to the committee and we'll probably not get voted on again in the parliament before September. Wow. <laughs> so action proposing the report will definitely be delayed by yet another couple of months. Not good. Mm-hmm. Okay. And proposals, however, are not so important and more scientifically and technologically controversial things like the ban on combustion engines by 2035 have been passed. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of electromobility. Okay. But it won't solve the big problem. In fact, it opens up a whole new can of worms and brings up a lot of other problems to solve. Yeah. Yes, it's important to reduce carbon dioxide emissions by by automobiles as well, but it is far from being the greatest source of greenhouse gases out there. I think this is a clear demonstration of how politics can ruin everything. Yeah, exactly. It can be the most effective way to hinder changes. And that sickens me, to be honest. Yeah. It's also such a no-brainer. It's just... Yes, it is. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like, we, we still have the chance and politics and just like basically bureaucracy and, and standing in your own, like standing in each other's way is ruining it. Yeah, and, and I appreciate that it's a complex issue. So it's not as easy as, well, we decide to, to deal with it and we, we, we're going to deal with it because it has several aspects. It has a social aspect. It has an economical aspect. It has many, many different aspects. But the original plan addressed those aspects. Okay. So this is why I, I, I mentioned earlier that there was, there was an actual social part of this reform and a lot of other things that would have dealt with the issues at hand yeah and no because politically they thought i'm talking about the conservatives they thought that they could not sell it uh, they decided to to try to water it down and push for amendments that the democrats the, the socialists and, and, and the greens uh felt like like it was it was unacceptable and i don't blame them for it but this was a very serious thing to do not passing because it was watered down. But I think the watering down of things, of these proposals, was the issue in the first place. So uh, the Environmental Committee, which is a professional uh, body, they had put forward something that could have been passed and we would be much further in the process of solving the issues. Yeah. And it's not the case. No, it's not. It's really depressing. And something that is actually interesting is that conspiracy theories in 
connection to COVID-19 seem to also be associated with depression. Ooh. Yeah. It's, it's Depression all over the place. It's, it's really interesting. The significant minority, as we know, um, of people believes in conspiracy theories. And mm-hmm. now a study found out that these beliefs may be harmful because those prone to anxiety and depression um, showed that a huge number of people are open to that belief in conspiracy theories and this um the severity of their anxiety can be, could be increased mm-hmm. who uh, in people who expressed a belief in these theories in major european countries like germany france italy and the uk uh, 30 to 40% of people believe that the government has taken um the chance to control the citizens and to work with big pharma in this um pandemic so it's still a minority but it's a big minority if you think about it interestingly there was a very significant increase in the severity of depression symptoms um but in the survey they said like they of course don't know which comes first if the belief in conspiracy theories causes more anxiety and depression or if people who are more anxious and depressed are more attracted to these theories so could be a hand and an neck problem <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah but i found that really interesting and the thing that's also bad is like if you believe all these things and you get more depressed and then a lockdown happens mm-hmm. you get even more depressed or anxious because we know that the depression and anxiety numbers went up through the lockdowns because it's just like a, an isolated situation for people and if you then also count in that conspiracy theories are also harmful in that regard then that's actually really jarring and um, also very interesting to find that connection mm-hmm. well finding the connection is part of doing research and uh, I came across uh, something that um, was listed a lot of research on how people tend to believe things and and why these uh, mis and disinformation campaigns actually work so it's a very important document and it was released last week Mm -hmm. and the publisher was the institute for strategic dialogue and it's a london-based international think tank Mm -hmm. and the document basically assesses and addresses the problem of climate related dis and misinformation in the wake of cop26 the report Uh, was put together as a result of a collaboration of several American, European and Australian institutions. And the initiative came about after the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which also is referred to as IPCC, went on to name climate-related dis- and misinformation, as well as the politicization of science, as key factors in any kind of inaction or delay in action about climate change. Mm. So... That happened after COP26 in Glasgow, where apparently the problem has seriously emerged. Experts finally accepted the fact that we won't be able to solve the climate crisis without tackling the information crisis. Mm. Okay? We've heard that before. Uh, we've talked, we've interviewed experts on, on that topic. But I think the more documents are out there, especially in the hands of politicians who make the decisions, the better. So... There is extensive research into cognitive processes that lead to the spread of mis- and disinformation, how a relatively small number of actors can have a a massive impact on society is also already quite well known and well researched. And that process can result in the in climate denialism, delayism, which is also on the rise, and uh, real science and scientific debates get sidelined by junk science or outright pseudoscience. 
So this document, which is titled Deny, Deceive, Delay, Documenting and Responding to Climate Disinformation at COP26 and Beyond, serves a double purpose. It is a compilation of all the scientific knowledge currently available on the matter, as well as a source of well-defined concepts for later discussions and actions to take. It has a very useful glossary of terms at the beginning, followed by a detailed analysis of uh, social and social psychological phenomena that are necessary to understand how climate-related misinformation and disinformation works. And the authors discuss media outlets and their role, uh, social networks, uh, leading the reader through a series of case studies. But the document also outlines what the key points are in the role of political actors and intergovernmental bodies in tackling the issues, including the IPCC. In their executive summary, the publisher ISD claims, and I quote, it is a data-driven examination of the landscape, actors, systems, and approaches that are combining to prevent action on climate, end quote. It's a lengthy document, but definitely worth reading or at least skimming through. Mm -hmm. Of course, you'll be able to, to reach the link on our show notes as well. As usual. Yeah. Something that also feels a bit usual <laughs> okay. is that Scotland and the UK are a bit uh, in disagreement right now. <laughs> well, it does happen if occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this time they split over GM food. And we talked about it on the show, I think, two weeks ago or maybe even a bit longer, that the UK can now grow gene-edited crops um, because they left the EU and now don't have to follow these EU rules anymore. Problem is, Scotland does not want to have these gene-edited crops forced, in air quotes, on them because of the easing of the regulations in the UK. They feel that they're forced. The Environment Secretary, Mary McAllen, dismissed the idea of um, allowing gene-edited food to be grown in Scotland. And Scotland doesn't want to and won't make the same changes as England does. Um, they won't accept any constraint on the um, exercise of their standards in Scotland. And the problem is that the UK's Internal Market Act means that anything approved for sale in one part of the UK must be available across the whole of the UK. <laughs> so you can see the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, I've got a quote by a UK cabinet minister who said, outside the EU, we are free to follow the signs. That should really make the EU think. <laughs> yes. It's like, yes, he's absolutely right. And I wish the EU would also follow the science and um, would allow to grow safe gene-edited food too. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. And I want to talk about another topic that is very unsafe. And that is that there's a woman who actually lost a an ovary because of homeopathy yeah. and um now you might say like what <laughs> i know like homeopathy doesn't work beyond the placebo effect how did she lose lose an ovary exactly and the thing is this woman she has endometriosis and she had it since she was 13 mm -hmm. and her parents listened to homeopaths and other alternative medicine people And she, um, for example, wasn't allowed to take painkillers because they would um, have an impact on her liver. And everyone who has ever heard of endometriosis knows how painful your period is when, when you have endometriosis. And to um, only then receive like globules, homeopathic globules, or like Bachblüten, which is like beach 
Bach flowers. Mm-hmm. It's like also another scam thing. <laughs> yeah, to only receive that if you're actually in pain, that's that's really bad. Um, I mean, I have to give it to the parents that they did drive her to the hospital if she had broken bones or like very um, dangerous accidents. So it wasn't neglect. It was more that they didn't know better and that her father had an autoimmune um, disease, couldn't be helped by medicine Mm -hmm. and tried alternative things. And then they all drifted into this alternative medicine um, situation. The problem is that her endometriosis was so bad that when she was... Um, about 20 they actually went to a gynecologist mm-hmm. and they found out that she had her her uterus and everything around it was um, full of cysts uh, so she got medicine the cysts and and um, a lot of the other things happening healed but one cyst was completely around her right ovary and suffocated it oh. so she now says homeopathy killed my ovary because she only received homeopathy. Which is basically right. Yeah. So is there a, Did she sue anyone over it? Nah, she didn't. Um, because it, it's um, so long ago. And it's also like... She said she talked to her parents. The parents actually even apologized. And they also went out of the whole esoteric <laughs> um, alternative medicine scene. Well, better late than never, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean... The problem is that, like, who to sue, you know? But but she says yeah. she's angry at the people that actually claim that diseases can be healed by homeopathy. Yeah, yeah. She said, yeah, well, if I wouldn't have just taken the sugar shit, <laughs> mm-hmm. then I could have gotten the diagnosis much earlier. And mm-hmm. luckily, she could still have children with her left ovary. Yeah. But, but she is just angry about the years of pain that she had. Yeah. That could have been avoided. Exactly. And did you say where where this happened? Uh, that was in Vienna, in Austria. Okay. But it could also have happened in Germany, for example. Like, yeah, yeah. this is a story. Probably not a very uh, yes. infrequent yeah, exactly. thing to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Not very nice, but uh, we're going to have to move on and find out who's been really wrong lately. Exactly. Yeah. And... I'm taking over really wrong, so you might you might um, have expected Pontus's voice here, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Pontus. Hey son, hey son. No, <laughs> yeah, I um, want to talk to you about an organization that is called Eurocam, which stands for the European Complementary and Alternative Medicine Stakeholder Group, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they are basically people that lobby in the Dutch, European and global politics. One might also could call them quacks, 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 <laughs> quack, quack, quack. Quack, quack. (laughs) But of course, we're not doing this on this podcast. Uh, We don't want to get sued. And uh, yeah, they made very troublesome statements about antibiotic resistance, Mm -hmm. that homeopathy or alternative medicine could help in the regards of antibiotic resistance and that it could enhance the immune system. We talked about that on the podcast already and that's of course pure nonsense we, we know that like well how should it enhance the immune system eurocam the organization is also connected to anthroposophy 
Ayurveda, Homeopathy, Osteopathy, Whole Medicine, Traditional Chinese Medicine, Acupuncture and Reiki. <laughs> so like basically you name it, they <laughs> <I> have it. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was created about 2009 and uh, one of their figureheads is Ton Nikolai, who is a homeopath and he's very well known by the Vereinigen Degende Quacksalverei, which is the skeptical Dutch skeptics organization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Eurocam seems to have originated from Dutch homeopathic circles and um, they have and use a lot of money from the EU, for example. <laughs> and they are a member of the European Public Health Alliance and that means that both the um, World Health Organization and the EU consider Eurocam as a serial legal entity. That's really bad. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because they're already intervened in consultations um, in pharmaceutical strategy and cancer and digital data and so on. So they are um, putting sticks into wheels um, in that regard. So I could even give a really wrong award to the EU and the World Health Organization for considering them as serious, <laughs> just to be honest. <laughs> yeah. But for lobbying where there are not experts and for making medical claims that are not true, Eurocam receives today's prize for being really wrong. And as you would say to Pontus, it's well deserved. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Now I know how that feels. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thanks a lot for presenting it. And that concludes our show. But before we go, I'd like you to uh, share a quote with us, if you have one. Yes, I do. And it's by the British author, actor and journalist Stephen Fry, mm. born 1957. Love him. Yes, <laughs> he's awesome. <laughs> and um, he wrote this in The Fry Chronicles. And that is... The only reason people do not know much is because they do not care to know. They are incurious. Incuriosity is the oddest and most foolish failing there is. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's right. Couldn't agree more. Yes. And on that quote and on that note, I think we are concluding today's show. And I'd like to thank you, Annika, for joining me today. Thank you. <laughs> many, many thanks also to our listeners for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week... Goodbye. Tschüss. Bis lat. Hey do. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time. But until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe I'm recording two. All right, let's do this. <laughs>